So the theme of my talk is what comes next. <laughs> so I, it's, um, it's always nice when the theme intersects with reality in some, <laughs> in some way or other. And particularly, I want to ask the question of what comes next for, in the words of Mary Oliver, our wild, precious lives. What comes next for our wild, precious lives? And in choosing that theme, I'm partly um, sort of energized by the new year and by the fact that for many of us, we've just had some relatively quiet time, hopefully. For some, it may be continuing. And it often is this time, you know, when we go to New Year's intentions, which I think is stronger in our culture than in some other cultures. I was talking... I had dinner with a friend uh, who was from Spain originally last night, and he was saying, well, you know, in Spain, they just don't have the same attitude towards New Year. But here we really focus on intentions and setting intentions and finding ways to um, make adjustments or shift our lives if we need to. So I was inspired um, partly by that and also partly by... uh, a suggestion made by a member of the class, who unfortunately I think is not here. Uh, In October, um, I invited um, naming of themes which people wanted to explore and hear explored. And one of the themes was, I'm at a point in my life where I'm not sure what comes next. How do I approach that? How um, How do I know what to do? How do I... Um, get in touch with that. So I wanted to really explore that theme, and it's, it's a large one. And so there's a good chance that we may continue on uh, next, next week as well. Because I, I know in what I was uh, reflecting on before uh, coming that there's, there's a lot of different uh, aspects of, it, of, of that question. So I thought I'd read the uh, poem by Mary Oliver just to start us, in which she has this beautiful line near the end. It's called The Summer Day. Who made the world? Who made the swan and the black bear? Who made the grasshopper? This grasshopper, I mean, the one who has flung herself out of the grass, the one who is eating sugar out of my hand, who is moving her jaws back and forth instead of up and down, who is gazing around with her enormous and complicated eyes. Now she lifts her pale forearms and thoroughly washes her face. Now she snaps her wings open and floats away. I don't know exactly what a prayer is. I do know how to pay attention, how to fall down into the grass, how to kneel down in the grass, how to be idle and blessed, how to stroll through the fields, which is what I have been doing all day. Tell me, what else should I have done? (laughs) Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? Tell me what it is you plan to do with your one wild and precious life. And it's a powerful, it's a powerful poem. They're powerful words. It really reminds me partly of the uh, emphasis in Tibetan Buddhism on the fact that having a human life is very precious. And, you know, there's this 
uh, metaphor they use that every whatever, every hundred thousand eons, a turtle comes up to the surface of the water somewhere on all the oceans on the planet and there's a, you know, kind of like an inner tube somewhere on the oceans and the chance of that turtle sticking the turtle head through the inner tube somewhere on the oceans of the earth is the same chance of being born as a human being. That's often uh, not too high a chance. And so it, it can really help us to reflect, and very much like the poem lets us reflect, uh, that there's something very deep and precious about the fact of awareness and consciousness, and what is it that we want to do with this, in a way, this, uh, this gift? And it's a beautiful way to look at things. I know it helps me a lot to reflect in that way as I can. Have you ever just gone around town and looked at everyone knowing that everyone has Buddha nature, where everyone is a sacred being, it changes consciousness, doesn't it? Do that when you watch the television and look at some of our politicians. That's advanced practice. <laughs> uh, but seriously, uh, it's, it's, a very, it's a very special way to look. And I think that's the spirit of the poem. It's to really take our own... Uh, specialness, the uniqueness of being born, having awareness, and to, in a way, uh, be wise and caring with this, with this uh, gift of life. And so it's, um, it's a big question. What do we do with our one wild and precious life? And it's a question which many people keep asking. You know, I, I can recall in the last month or two, Several conversations with people in their 50s, and I think at least one in their 60s, who was asking, what am I going to do with my life? You know, and there's, um, I think there's actually, we can um, smile a little bit, because in our culture we're supposed to know what to do, what, at age 21 or something? <laughs> and, and if we haven't known by then, something's wrong, you know, or something like that. So... There was some, but there's something also, some beauty, because it's really not so much about what should I have done, but what should I do now? Maybe what should I do when I see more clearly, or I feel certain um, energies more fully? What should I do now? Um, and what, you know, how do, we, how do we know what wants to come next, or what to do next in our lives? For some of us, there may be clarity about that, or there may be clarity on some levels. You know, we may have made choices which um, set up responsibilities which are like, you know, if we have a child who's three, everything is not up for grabs, <laughs> right? <clears throat> and, and so sometimes we can ask that question, what comes next? And we may know some of the forms in our life, but we can also even know those forms, and ask that kind of question. And it may come out of a feeling of, I'm stuck, or I don't feel like I'm living as fully as I want to. We can have that sense. And, and that's a hard feeling to have, but it also can be uh, generative. That's, that's where we go back to that theme of uh, faith in... Uh, with the darker aspects of life, because feeling stuck is, 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 in a way, one of the darker aspects. 
Um, I remember when I was, um, a few years ago, when I was um, involved in clown training, which some of you know I, I had. I trained with the Clown School of San Francisco. And occasionally my, um, what, my sub-personality comes out, which I, I'm not planning for to come out today, but, you know, I have a, the sub-personality was my clown personality name, Garbanzo Bean. But I was, I was think, reflecting on this. One, one of the people in, my, in our clown troupe, because we did several performances in San Francisco at the end of the uh, training. Uh, it was like a six-month training. And one of our people in our troupe did this um, clown act of being stuck. And she just completely in mime, she just walked around and it was clear that every time she stepped somewhere, she would be stuck. You can imagine physically the image of this person, just one step, oh, I'm stuck. And I'm just trying to take oneself out of, the, out of the stuckness with where she was. And it was, you know, she did that for three, min- three or four minutes was her performance, showing what it, all the intricacies of being stuck by probably not moving more than six feet. And, and there's that stuckness can be a hard time, but it's also uh, a time when we can really work with our practice, but we can be confused. Something seems to want to come out that comes next, but what is it? And how do we get there? How do we, how do we hold that uh, feeling of stuckness in perspective? And are there skillful ways to act on that? Or sometimes we may have this really strong energy coming through and have a sense of, I really know what I'm deeply pulled to do, but I have no idea how it's going to manifest in my life. You know, I was talking with a friend a few days ago who is like that. There's, you know, she is just totally energized by chanting. And it's like she, she now she lives just to chant. And it really taps into this very vital, powerful, beautiful energy. And yet she has a job. She has a husband. <laughs> she has a home. It says, something is want to, wanting to come through me. You know, I feel this really, really strongly. But I have no idea what I'm going to do with the form of my life, you know. And so it's, it's also a, uh, a question. How do we hold that sense of what wants to come next and hold that wisely? And are there skillful ways to act with that? And I think this is true whether we talk about a person. It could be a, an organization or a marriage, a relationship, uh, a community, a country. Some countries get stuck. Nothing particularly named at the moment. But some, con- some countries get stuck. And, and how do we hold that not knowing or the stuckness in the sense of what wants to come next or what, how do we feed what's uh, healthy in what wants to come next? So a few reflections on this. The first is maybe a cautionary note, which is that I heard yesterday that the same area of the brain which is responsible for planning the future is connected with a sense of humor. That's interesting. <laughs> the same part of the brain which is responsible. So that would be to have a grain of salt with your planning. <laughs> the same part of the brain which which uh, plans the future ha- is connected with a sense of humor. I think that's, there's some excellent design, whoever designed us, or whatever, whatever process. 
And so one way always to work with questions like the question of uh, how do I keep faith in a time of darkness is to use our meditation practice as a reference point. It's really, uh, I think, a very skillful way to uh, answer some of those questions. We can look at a particular difficulty in some part of our life and then say, not that we're going to get all the answers, but we can get some helpful clarity by saying, okay, in my sitting practice, what do I do? You know, what do I do with a difficult time? What do I do when I feel stuck? What do I do when I don't know what's going to come next? And we're really trained, in a way, in our mindfulness practice to sometimes cultivate a sense of unknowing, to cultivate a sense of openness and just be, I have no idea what's happening, but I do know how to be present. And that can be a real, that can be a real guide. I, I don't have a map of what's going on, but I can be present, I can know, I can suspend maybe some of the um, pressure to know what's happening. And that's, um, I think that's an ability or a skill which we develop in meditation. We develop the ability at times to be open and not knowing and be comfortable with that. And that's really important. And so we can use our meditation practice in that sense. And we can also uh, know that part of the process of coming to what's next or what's new is um, seeing what the old models are or the old ways of seeing that sometimes we have to let go of. And a lot of what we do in our meditation practice is also to notice all the ways that we frame experience, you know, the ways that we may be um, scared of the future. It was really interesting for me. When I first started meditation practice, I was really surprised to see that there was a part of me which was actually scared of the future. I don't know, there, it's, I won't go into the psychology of it, but I did see that. There was a way that I kind of wanted to have things be neat and organized and to have a kind of openness to the future had scary aspects to it. You know? and, um, and so part of my own practice was to be able to see, just to see that and to hold space around it. And it's in the noticing and the seeing of the ways we organize experience or our patterns, the way we relate to the future, to planning, to our sense of self, to our self-image, all of these things. It's, the, it's in the noticing of that that we often can have greater wisdom about whether these uh, models or these ways of organizing are helpful or not. And so it's a really important um, dimension of our practice is just to notice how we're tending to structure experience when we're given the assignment, more or less, as we are in our mindfulness practice. Just be aware and present and have no additional input. And so what we get to see when we're mindful is all the residue of past conditioning, Mm -hmm. all the past models. And we get to see that. And that is extremely helpful for knowing what needs to come next or what wants to come next because we can be more aware of how we tend to organize the sense of what comes next through the old models, which may be like my experience may have aspects of fear or wanting to control or not being able to be open, or it may be the opposite. Sometimes we can be 
um, really so radically open but not really take responsibility. And I think that's sometimes a kind of distortion of our practice, which I've seen in a lot of people, where, where we say, oh, I'll just be in the present and in the moment. If I get a job, I get a job. If I'm, you know, you get the idea. If I'm, if I'm uh, you know, if I'm responsible, I'm responsible. I'll just go with the wind, you know. And um, how many people know that in yourself, that you've kind of experimented with that side? You know, some people go, maybe we explore both sides, but sometimes we explore that side. Sometimes we explore the side of wanting to have things orderly and controlled and so forth. But we can really get distorted in both ways. And so a large part of what we notice that's really helpful for these times when we want to see what comes next is, the, um, is this uh, ability to see how we organize or structure experience. There's something also, I think, that's implicit in our practice, which is a very, very deep uh, principle, I think, which is a principle of ultimately in our practice, and this has to do with your question about faith, ultimately we cultivate a deep faith in the unfolding of experience. It's really a deep faith in human nature that we, in our meditation practice, and a lot of us we may experience this more intensely sometimes on retreats, that we are able to uh, deepen our sense of the... um, and it's something that's both personal and universal, to deepen our sense of that there's, there are impulses to learning, to deepening, to opening, which are in our being, which we learn more and more to trust. It's really we learn to trust more and more. And, and it's, again, it has a, both a universal aspect in terms of the nature of the mind and the heart and so forth, and it has a very personal aspect in terms of what is my own personal unfolding? You know, what is the pattern that needs to happen for me if I'm most open? So, so as, we, as we practice more, I think that we begin, to, um, we begin to trust in what, uh, I think in Joseph Goldstein's first book, his subtitle was about this whole path. He called it a natural unfolding. And it's uh, another teacher once said, just sit and be present and the whole of life will unfold before you. That's sort of a a very focused way of saying it, that there's something about uh, being present, being open, being aware, which which invites our being to manifest as it, as it most wants to do. Thich Nhat Hanh, in one of his poems, said it this way, don't talk about love. He probably he could go on and say, don't talk about love. Don't talk about wisdom. Just be yourself. That's all you need to do. And he wasn't meaning be yourself in terms of the superficial aspects. He was really, I think, pointing to this trust in this deep, almost like a longing in, in in Sufi traditions and in some Islamic and Jewish and Christian traditions, there's this sense of this being in touch with the longing to touch our depths and that we, we can cultivate that, we can open to that. And that's part of being 
uh, aware of what comes next. There's, a, there's another poem from, uh, actually it's just a little line from E.E. E. Cummings. He said something very similar. He said, to be nobody but yourself in a world which is doing its best night and day to make you everybody else means to fight the hardest battle which any human being can fight and never stop fighting. Now, he used the language of fighting and battle, and you can translate that if you want to, but I'll read it again because it's a powerful one. To be nobody but yourself in a world which is doing, which is doing its best night and day to make you everybody else means to fight the hardest battle which any human being can fight and never stop fighting. And that's, again, I think that's related to this notion that we cultivate in our practice, which is to, um, it's really to trust more and more in the unfolding. And so, um, I think what what I'll do is, I could say more about that, but I think I want to turn in the last part of what I say to some practical ways to help that happen. We could, we could actually say a lot more because there's something, there's something very powerful about this deepening trust in our being. And again, we, 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 we can um, see that sometimes in our meditation, in our retreats. It's a, it's a learning to see the part of ourself which is conditioned and happening there because of past conditioning, habits, old patterns. And to more and more be in touch with the vitality which wants to come forth which wants to, to manifest. And we can sometimes uh, tap that in our meditation, sometimes in retreat, sometimes in doing something which uh, feels very creative to touch our vitality. There's, a, there's another beautiful passage from uh, the great African-American a mystic and activist Howard Thurban, who... Uh, I think he died about uh, 25 years ago, but he, he, was, uh, he set up one of the first um, sort of multicultural churches in San Francisco in the 1940s, and some of you may know of his work. He's, he's not actually very well known, but he's a very powerful figure. He, he was once uh, asked by a young man, what should he do with his life? You know, those kind of questions which... And he, which it's hard to give a quick answer to, right? And this is what Howard Thurman said, which I think is one of the best quick answers I've ever heard. And this is what he said. And this, is, this comes from an activist. He said, don't ask yourself what the world needs. An activist said that. Don't ask yourself what the world needs. Ask yourself what makes you come alive and go do that. Because what the world needs is people who have come alive. I'll read that again. Don't ask yourself what the world needs. Ask yourself what makes you come alive and go do that because what the world needs is people who have come alive. And again, that's one metaphor. We can talk about um, um, coming alive. We can talk about going into our deeper places. But it's really to answer that question, how do we get a sense of what wants to come next. And this sense of the being a natural unfolding means that if really is to say that we can have a faith that if we listen deeply, we do can get a sense of what wants to come next, that there is 
a kind of organic impulse towards growth, towards healing, towards wholeness, which I think we, we uh, touch and increasingly get more familiar with and tap into. And that it's also something in a way which we can see in relationships or in uh, organizations or in even countries. And it doesn't mean sometimes that everything, it doesn't mean that everything just gets better and better. You know, it can mean that we need to go through a difficult process or we need to let go of this job or this relationship. Part of the motivation for the question a few months ago were people who were saying, how do I know when to let go of a job? How do I need, know to need, how do I know when I need to let go of a relationship? It's really a hard question. And I remember about 10 years ago, I was in a really challenging relationship and I was looking for some guidance about knowing when to end a relationship. And I looked in all the um, kind of popular books on love and romance and kind of self-helpy books about relationships. No one had any good guidance whatsoever on that issue. <laughs> Maybe there's something now, but at that time I didn't find anything that was at all helpful for, asking, for answering that question. And I was left on my own and the best guidance I got was from some friends who were, who were couples therapists. And they, they basically said, whatever you do, keep learning. Mm-hmm. That, was, that was most helpful. In other words, don't be quite so fixated on this or that happening, but keep your commitment to learning and being open. That was really helpful. Everything else, not much that was useful. So we, we asked that question, what, you know, what, need, what, what wants to come next or need to come next? And we, I think we learned to almost um, trust more in, almost in our beings as this natural unfolding towards greater wholeness and wisdom, which sometimes needs to go through experiences of dissipation or loss or deconstruction of structures and sometimes needs to build things. And so, again, it doesn't mean that we, everything just gets better, brighter, more wonderful, more happy. It's, it's, it's deeper than that, isn't it? So a few, a few things that can, be, that can be helpful. One is to have uh, regular practices or venues where we get in touch with deeper intentions. That... One of the, I know for me personally, for many people, one of the most challenging aspects of life as it's organized in this culture is that a lot of us get really busy. And it's really hard. And when, we have, when we're so busy, it's, sometimes it's like our depth just get covered over by details and to-do lists and things that we need to do. And so it's really actually a very powerful part of knowing what needs to come next is just to make space for their, their space and time to actually investigate it. You know, it's very hard to know what needs to come next when we're always busy. And so, you know, and, and again, it's very much uh, almost like a disease of our culture, this, this busyness. And I don't know if, if we're the exception here, because we're, this is the work day, you know, <laughs> 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, and we're just going for whatever, spiritual edification or whatever on a, on a work day. So we may, this may not be a problem for any of us, but... Is there anyone for whom 
busyness is occasionally a problem. <laughs> okay. okay, I thought it might be that way. So, so just creating space uh, in which we can actually um, touch our depths is probably the most important thing that we can do to know what needs to come next. And we can do that through regular sitting. We can do that through retreats. Uh, we can do that by setting aside times in which we aren't so active. You know, I've, I've talked, I talk from time to time about the practice of the Sabbath, ancient practice, both Western and Eastern. And it's been a practice which I've followed for most of the last 25 years of taking more or less a day a week not to, um, not to be so busy. And I don't always do so well with the other six days. <laughs> That's another question. <laughs> but, uh, but on that day, to keep some boundaries, because it's, it's like to, to have the depth occur or to know what wants to come next, we have to give space for it. It's not a matter of thinking it out. That really has to do with this growing trust in the ability for something organic to come from our very being. We have to give it space and time to do it. It's not a matter of thinking it out. It's not a matter of sitting down and making a plan. It's more a matter of letting it come from the depths. And that takes the time and energy. And I I think I've sometimes talked about there was a time seven or eight years ago when I felt myself um, overly busy with uh, of course, wonderful things, wonderful projects and so forth. But I felt like I was too busy and there were some parts of myself that wanted to come out that just weren't having the time and space. And so, uh, and I was just about to begin like a three-year project and I, something in me said, no, it is not the time to do that. I need to, uh, if I do that, I'll just be lined up for more busyness for the next three years. And there's something I could feel and know that there was something that wanted to um, deepen in some way that couldn't do it without um, some open time and space. And so I was able, and not everyone can do this, but I was able to um, let go of a lot of my work and uh, participation in various activities. I was on the board of the Buddhist Peace Fellowship. I stopped doing that. I was co-editor of a journal. I stopped doing that. Uh, I stopped my, uh, a lot of my teaching. I tried to keep my responsibilities but keep boundaries around it. So I said, I'm only going to do teaching five days a, w- a month. And the other days, I want to have a boundary around it so I don't have to do it during that time. And then I also set aside time to do some longer retreats. So I was able to do in about 13 months, about four months on retreat which played a really a big role in everything. But it was creating that boundaries, and I was able, luckily, to make it work financially. <coughs> and in a way, I had a sense of what was going to emerge, you know, what wanted to come next, but I didn't really know it in my guts. And sometimes we can have that difference between the intellectual knowledge and the, the felt sense of, of really being present with something. So that, whatever way that we create space is really important. Uh, Finding ways to go to the depths, whatever does, whatever does that. It can be a vacation, wilderness, time off, creating boundaries, uh, engaging in what really moves us. All of these things really help. Um, and then within that, 
being careful of the tendency to over-structure, over-plan, and in a way, like our practice, let what wants to happen come out on its own. You know, again, I'm reminded that there's this uh, beautiful uh, passage in, in some of Thomas Merton's work where he says, basically, I'm paraphrasing, he says, the deep self is like a shy, wild animal that only comes out when the conditions are right. Especially when there's safety and when there's um, um, open space and time. The deep self is like a shy, wild animal that doesn't come out always so easily. It's a tender, tender part of ourselves in a way. Maybe I'll maybe I'll stop here, and I I think I'll read I'll read two um, short quotations to finish. One is by Gary Snyder, who uh, one of my heroes, a poet, and has been an activist, and also sort of a spokesperson for the wild. Some of you know his book. Uh, what's it called? It's called Practice of the Wild. It's one of my favorite books. And he likes to see the way, it's very much in the spirit of seeing our being. It's like Mary Oliver talks about what will you do with your one wild, precious life. And Gary Snyder likes to talk about how we've erected this barrier where we, between ourselves and what we call nature, where we think we're above nature or beyond it. And he wants to say that, I, guess, I think it's very much in the spirit of our practice, that there's a deep um, movement towards um, uh, nature self-organizing itself, that we don't have to control, that there's a quality in ourselves, in the trees, in the ecosystems, that moves towards greater wholeness and autonomy. And he said it this way, in wild nature there is no disorder, no plant in the almost endless mosaics of micro and macro community is really out of place. And then the last thing is from this wonderful book from a friend of mine, Ruth Gendler, The Book of Qualities, which personifies, you know, compassion and joy and makes them into people that you'd meet in a cafe or on the street. And this is, what she, this is her character called change. This is change. <clears throat> change wears my sister's moccasins. He stays up late and wakes up early. He likes to come up quietly and kiss me on the back of the neck when I am at my drawing table. He wants to amuse people. And it hurts him when they yell at him. Do you ever yell at change? It hurts. He wants to amuse people, and it hurts him when they yell at him. He is very musical, but sometimes you must listen for a long time before you hear the pattern in his music. Change is very musical, but sometimes you must listen for a long time before you hear the pattern in his music. So, that's by Ruth Gendler. And <clears throat> I'll end with an advertisement for Ruth Gendler's book. <laughs> not, not the usual procedure in Dharma Talks, but she, you, can, you can access the book at the website called Turquoise Mountain.
but I think I won't end with an advertisement. I'll read it again. <laughs> Change wears my sister's moccasins. He stays up late and wakes up early. He likes to come up quietly and kiss me on the back of the neck when I am at my drawing table. He wants to amuse people, and it hurts him when they yell at him. Change is very musical, but sometimes you must listen for a long time before you hear the pattern in his music. So, thank you. So we have some time just for any reflections or questions, and I think I may maybe next time do something with this where we maybe do some, maybe some interactive work as well. So any thoughts or questions? Or maybe, let me, here, let me, uh, let me invite a reflection just for a minute or two. This is just for yourself. Ask yourself just quietly for a minute or two, what wants to come next in my own life? Next doesn't mean that you have to have everything that comes next. It's sometimes just what immediately comes next. What's the next step? What's the next moment? And then how do I get there? Or what, what helps me to manifest what wants to come next? What's helpful for me to do or any concrete action or step? And feel free, if anyone, if it's helpful for you to write anything down, feel free to do that for a moment or two. (coughs) But any, any reflections or questions, perhaps that come out of your own, your own silent reflections? Yeah. Even, um, even asking, I wasn't aware until we did the exercise, but even asking the question, just brings up shoulds for me, mm-hmm. which, which is probably a statement about how I've led a lot of my life, mm. about my own condition. Mm-hmm. So it's, yeah. it isn't a great question. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Did everyone hear? 
Um, and remind me of your Lois. name. Lois was saying that when she asked the question, what wants to come next, she goes to the level of shoulds, like what should I be doing or what should come next. And she was reflecting on how that um, um, is not helpful for her. And so the, maybe the wording of the question was, is not takes her there. So maybe it might be, is there another way to word the question that, that helps you? But it's it's really a um, it's a it's a painful noting, but it's also an important one, and it's that as, as I was saying that um, what we're really inviting is something that has um, depth and authenticity to come forth, and in order for that to happen, sometimes we need to notice the uh, the structures which we use to try to, whatever, interpret or say what should happen, and to actually be aware of that. Like in the, um, uh, you know, in the example I gave of myself, uh, you know, when I was first practicing, do you think if I was actually scared of the future that I was going to be able really to get in touch with what wants to come next? For me, actually, I probably needed to actually look at that conditioning quite a lot to be able to do that. So, so, so that may be something really to to notice. Is there some way that we, when we ask that question, at least right here, we, we get in touch with, in some sense, what stands in the way of deeply answering that question. That's helpful, though, to really notice it. So, um, so there may be some other ways that are more skillful for you to, to be in touch with that, and I'm sure you know what they are. Yeah. Um, but it, whatever, something that doesn't uh, sort of activate the, some of the old patterns is, is going to be helpful. So for some it might be to um, go into something that's sort of outside of the territory of shoulds, where it's like that, you know, that Rumi poem that many of you, I'm sure, know. You know, out there beyond right and wrong, there is a field, I'll meet you there. <laughs> right? You know, that, that, that beautiful poem. Uh, <laughs> right. So, so, and so you probably, so for you would say, the question would be, how do I get to that field? <laughs> or what, how do I, what helps me get to the field? Yeah. Please. Or the question might be, what is the change I'm most afraid of? Yeah. Yeah, because what's, everyone here, what's the change I'm most afraid of? So, if we were to go into, um, depth, we'd probably, we tailor this for each of us. You know, the, I gave a one-size-fits-all question. But it might be, but it's particularly to be aware of, um, of the, it's kind of like what stands in the way of having that be a more organic movement. Like in, in working with uh, Joanna Macy, she has a beautiful set of questions uh, which, uh, in terms, which are usually come after there's been a touching of depths, and then she asks the questions like, you know, what do you need to know to move towards what wants to come out, you know, and then what obstacles are you likely to place in your own way, <laughs> and actually knowing that and identifying that is a very helpful part of this process. What obstacles am I likely to put in my own way? even when I want something to develop. And to identify that 
those obstacles and what one's likely to do, which is um, sometimes it's a little, what, um, humbling. You know? but, but it seems like part of our practice, a big part of it, is to identify uh, and know very well some of the old ways of organizing experience, which may right now be ready to be deconstructed. You know, and that's, that's a big part of our practice. And so for some of us, like for me, the way I was describing my experience, probably the main thing that was happening, there were, I think, a few things happening in those first years was I was coming to see my conditioning much more clearly, and it was slowly getting deconstructed. And then I was also getting in touch maybe with something with this, uh, you know, I, even though that was there a lot, I was also maybe having some experiences of depth, of peace, or understanding that were really inspiring. And so that also pulled me in a certain way, and so sort of both were happening at the same time. So there was some inspiration, but also some noticing of really the old patterns. Yeah. Yeah. So that was, that was a great addition, like noticing what I'm... What, how did you phrase it? What I'm afraid to... What are the changes I'm most afraid of? Because the whole, the whole emphasis here, I think, with our practice is that we're not coming at the, at the process of transformation from the point of view of shoulds or of pressure or of demand. There's a, there's a really a gentle quality of our practice that we, we, um, we, we really trust in that unfolding. And the unfolding may take time. And so, for example, when we practice at retreats, the dominant style of the teachers in working really closely with people over time is to let, as it were, our old patterns and our defenses sort of melt on their, at their own pace. We don't storm the defenses. You know, some psychological approaches or some interpersonal approaches would do that, kind of very confrontational you know, you've got this problem, let's storm through it. And that's really kind of, and I think that sometimes has some positive qualities, but it's really the dominant style here is more, I would say, is a little more that of uh, letting go or has a gentle quality in which the, we come to see our defenses and we let them kind of dissolve at, our own, at their own pace mm-hmm. in which we're ready to open up and have maybe the certain resources and strength and support so we don't need them anymore because they're mostly old, aren't they? Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's actually, I think, an important part of our practice that if we find that voice of should or demand or, or you better do this or, or the kind of the judgmental voice, we, we, um, we can note that and be, uh, be careful not, not to act with that energy. It's more this uh, coming to trust in, in the, really the, the deep... Uh, movement from within without, without external pressure. That's really the spirit of the practice. It's a beautiful one, isn't it? It's really, uh, maybe that's why we're here. Because we've maybe tried, how many people have tried other approaches? <laughs> yeah. and some, some of the others were a little bit more, you should do this or get it together or I'll judge you bad. She said, and um, until this moment, I thought I was my patterns. 
So there's a lot there. Yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot there, and um, um, that's a big one. That's a big one, and and you're way more than your patterns, and um, and also some of the patterns I'm sure are beautiful ones. So, but but there's some. We really invite this uh, this deeper presence that has. Mm. It's not conditioned. It's mysterious, even. That's what I think. That's what Mary Oliver is talking about when she talks about the wild, precious life. So thank you, thank you for saying that. That's um, that's a lot. And how many can relate to that, that pattern, that what she was saying, you know? Please, yeah. I, I think it, it takes a lot to, you know, you, you have a feeling you want to go in one direction, but where is that coming from? What's motivating that? Mm-hmm. You know, is it a pattern or is it something deeper? Yeah. Allowing the time and the space to kind of follow through and let the different things come out and, and then try mm-hmm. to see where you know, where what's really what's, what's really deep or wise, you know. Yeah, it's a great do. it's a great for me personally, yeah, or for you personally. It's a great question. Is did everyone hear? It's something about. You know, we, we talk about sort of a natural unfolding or we talk about really trusting. Well, and we get a lot of voices. So how do we know which ones we should follow? You know, we get, okay, this one says, I feel a deep natural unfolding towards more ice cream. <laughs> I'm, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but, you know, you, you get the four. It could be, or I feel, this feels really, really genuine. And then we'd later say, well, it was mixed. And so that's part of the practice that we, that we do. And I think, I think I'll talk more about that next time because it's a big one. But it's the practice that we do is a kind of a, a gradual discerning of what is the authentic voice and what is, um, what is the voice of another part of ourselves, you know, and we, we only learn that by just studying it endlessly. It's like the, the Buddha talked about the discrimination between what he called kusala and akusala, patterns of mind. The, and then they're usually translated as wholesome or unwholesome. And that kind of gets into a little bit of Victorian morality with the translation. It's a big problem for a large number of translations of Buddhist texts. They were originally done in the Victorian time and so... There's an overlay of repressive morality, <laughs> so we have to be. So we need a whole generation of uh, translate. Let me let me just say one thing, and then I'll come back. But but the maybe it's more helpful to translate that as skillful or unskillful. Like how do I know which of my patterns really actually lead towards greater freedom, and which of them are kind of my old patterns camouflaging themselves? And that's it's a it's a tricky deep one, and. But it's a great question to ask and to keep on asking. And I think we only, it's like we, um, 
um, we kind of activate a part of ourselves that is, it's almost like an authenticity detector, like a lie detector or something, that we come to know, and it's sort of like we can know more and more in ourselves, where is that coming from? And we only know that by just continual mindfulness and study of ourselves. It's not something that we can think out or figure out. I think we only know that by just uh, being aware over and over again and coming to know, it's like like, uh, many of us were saying, coming to know the patterns, coming to know the conditioned patterns or the patterns which are not helpful. And then we can, or, or like you were saying, maybe the what, that, which comes out of fear, and then we gradually come to know, okay, where is that coming from? And it's like the, uh, the passage by Ruth Gendler. Sometimes we have to listen a long time to hear the pattern in the music. We don't know immediately. Uh, but that's, that's a short answer, kind of a, a long short answer. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it, it relates to what you were saying about the choice. You, at one point there was this project yeah. that you were thinking, which... I'm sure was a very good project, yeah. but you had to come to a realization that that particular timing wasn't right for you. Yeah. And I feel like right now I'm, I'm at a point where I need to make some kind of decision mm-hmm. like that and playing into what's, if I want to do something that's more a retreat kind of mm. thing, Am I doing it because I fear something else? Yeah. That, uh, you know, there are all these possibilities, and it's not that anyone is right or wrong, but yeah. what the, how it is for me at this particular point, yeah. my development. Yeah. So it's, it's, a, it's a big one, and let's, um, let's continue with that theme some next time, because it's a big one. I personally would love to, there's a lot that I had thought about which I didn't, bring out. Does that feel okay with people? Can you continue with the theme? And what I would invite us to do is to um, explore what we've raised in the next week in a variety of ways. Some of it is maybe looking at large questions like you're looking at and ask yourself, what's helpful for me to sort of go deeper and see see what you find. Some of it is, you know, because we I talk about this sort of natural unfolding. Some of it, there's a place also for noticing dreams, noticing what comes up in the dreams, noticing what comes, just how our bodies feel. There's, so there's, so we, we kind of explore the wisdom of dreams, the wisdom of the body, the wisdom of all these different parts of ourselves that we need to in some way know well in order to have the discernment. So um, let's see... Sort of take, for those interested, a kind of take-home practice for the next week would be to really explore that. And you can look at the question of what comes next, both in terms of the big issues and in terms of small stuff, like, you know, um, what should I do this afternoon? How do I decide that? Or what will I do this evening? Or how should I respond to what this person said? It's really uh, this more and more, how do we come from something deeper in ourselves? in whatever we, we do. And so I think I'd, I'd invite that kind of exploration. And if you want to, take notes uh, along the way and bring them back, and we'll, um, we'll continue with this uh, next time. Does that feel, does that feel good? Yeah. Okay.
So thanks so much. I hope that feels okay. As a, can we leave here? So let's just sit for about 30 seconds to finish. Letting be present, what may be, may have been helpful, or any intentions that we want to take out of this morning time together. And we close by remembering that we practice not just for ourselves, but for others. And may the fruits of our time together be offered outwardly to all beings for their benefit, for their healing, for their own transformation and freedom. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.